You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Jeremy Miller, um, thanks for coming on to The Big Trade series. It's uh, been some time since we've um, been uh, speaking to coordinate this, and I'm happy to have you on. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, um, Jeremy, you wrote this uh, fantastic book called uh, Ground Rules, which covers um, basically a a lot about Warren Buffett during his uh, partnership years. Perhaps you could give a quick synopsis of um, what you found um, the value of in terms of um, covering this aspect as opposed to um, more of his um, well-known letters from Berkshire Hathaway. Well, Peter, the book is really about Warren Buffett's time uh, in 1955 to 1970 when he was running a partnership, uh, what started as just a small group of seven other uh, friends and family members from whom he decided to manage money for. And he wrote them annually to try and help them understand how he was thinking about the markets. You know, he never really talked about explicitly what he was doing, very secretive, and and no one really knew what was in the portfolio at any given time. But uh, the letters were really written uh, with the intention of describing his process and his methodology. And so um, I found them very rich and, and very interesting from the perspective of, you know, here's a Wanda Young Buffett who could go anywhere and do anything, not at all constrained by the size of his funds the way he is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, you know, it was a period in his life where he really transitioned from, you know, a pure Grahamite, um, you know, as the, the star pupil of Ben Graham, obviously the, the value, father of value investing, and really, you know, migrated more towards a quality compounder. So, you know, the book is about really, it, it's, it's really carved into three sections. One is, you know, understanding the philosophy of markets. Two, you know, understanding some of the methods of operations, uh, the different kinds of investments that he was making. And then three, you know, some musings about, um, you know, taxes and, and the value of being conservative versus conventional and, you know, sort of other topics that he liked to address and, and, and use as tools to teach his, his, uh, his clients. Uh, Buffett's quite famous for discussing about um, some of the advantages of being relatively small. And I guess during this period of time, he, um, relative to Berkshire Hathaway nowadays, um, he was actually able to be much more agile in terms of his investments. I don't know if you had a chance to extrapolate what that competitive advantage is by examining some of the, um, the letters. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, there's this great quote from Buffett um, that surfaces all the time, which is something along the lines of, you know, if I was running a million or two million bucks today, I could make 50% a year compounded. And, you know, he goes as far as to guarantee it, right? And, you know, I get asked all the time whether I think that that's uh, a plausible sort of idea in today's markets. And what I like to remind people is that, you know, and, and, and we get from Buffett in this time uh, some case studies, which are really wonderful and rich. It's almost like you get this opportunity to look over uh, Buffett's shoulder as he's as he's investing. But you know, there's a couple uh, cases where he, he he massively concentrated in in micro caps. So you know, the first one was a company called Sanborn 
map company and he had uh, almost a third of the partnership assets in that um you know in the late 50s and it had a um you know uh i think a million five in in book equity right uh, no it was it was it was tiny you okay. know and then he came around and did uh Dempster Mill uh, which was in the early 60s, which is also uh, a hugely concentrated position he took control of ultimately. But, um, you know, that was also, you know, in the single digit million, uh, you know, market cap. So if you think about today, the, the, the inflation multiple would be like seven. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it was you're talking about like a 30 or 40 million dollar company today, these guys and 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 think how small that is relative to you know what most people invest in so those were these were underfollowed tiny sort of obscure off the radar companies in which he was able to to find and um you know invest in and i think i would i would imagine that he would do something very similar today which would be to to go where you know most professional investors can't and um you know look for some really mispriced assets in, in terms of a lot of the stuff that he learned from uh, Ben Graham, and I, I see mostly in those Berkshire letters, there's a lot of references to economic moats, which could be anomalous behavior within um, the, the assets of a particular company, the ability to um, generate, I guess, excess returns relative to assets. How would he have been able to do that in investing in many of these smaller companies um, and let's say if during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even the 80s, because many, even all the multinationals today are much bigger. They're like, you know, multinational companies with billions and billions of dollars in revenue the world over. And it makes sense to me from the perspective that there's some, a lot of intangible components to be having very reputable, well-known names such as Coca-Cola and Gillette. But during that period of time, they weren't multinationals. They weren't necessarily the go-to product. In fact, many of these companies were innovators. So I, I wonder how the principles of, you know, identifying um, cheap, great businesses would be applicable um, during the time of the partnership. Yeah. So really during the partnership, we see a transition. Um, and, you know, you go from the early years, which is the cigar butt period where, you know, whether it's a a Dempster Mill, which is a windmill implements company in Beatrice, Nebraska, that's on the verge of bankruptcy. And, you know, he sort of swoops in and, and repositions the assets and works the inventory down. I mean, time is not the friend of a business like that, right? And basically what he's doing is buying a, a company or an asset that is, you know, priced as as if it's on the, you know, going out of business. And then, you know, he resuscitates it into just a mediocrity mediocre business and you know gets the profit right and so that's the treadmill uh, uh lifestyle of uh of a ben ben graham uh disciple who's who's following his um his teacher to the letter right, right? um but buffett migrates away from that over time and you know at the end of the partnership those final years, he had 40% of the portfolio in American Express. Yes. Right? So here's here's the almost, um, the, I see the period as sort of him 
sort of limping into the quality compounders and right. you know really it's um it's be- and he had disney as well you know he had five owned five percent of disney um during the partnership years um you know he also bought um national indemnity yeah for uh berkshire hathaway during the the partnership years so you know, we do see these 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 migratory moves towards quality compounders, but it's slow. And I think it's really, um, in some ways, it had the best of both worlds because both American Express and Disney were not only good companies, but they were extremely cheap at the time that he bought them. Did you um, identify any uh, references to him identifying the value of things such as insurance companies? due to their insurance flows, um, because eventually he ends up acquiring Berkshire, um, a textile business, which he then utilizes the license of the um, insurance arm of Berkshire. Was there already hints and patterns of him noticing these interesting phenomenons as far as um, businesses are concerned that allow him to effectively create a fund off the heels of uh, basically an insurance platform? Yeah, so the brilliance in my mind uh, of Buffett in these early years is that, you know, this was the time where it was the concept of that that Graham had taught him, which is that, you know, investing is best done when it's most businesslike and business is best done when it's most investment-like, you know, really, uh, I think, is solidified for, you know, Buffett in this time period. You know, as an investor... And, and, and a partnership, um, you know, general partner, he was charged with deploying the funds that he had um, under management to their highest and best use. And then, you know, he took over businesses like Dempster, yeah. right, and also uh, took the same philosophy, which is deploy the assets to their highest and best use. Ultimately, I think he realized quite early that all capital is fungible um, from one form to another. So, you know, having a business uh, with capital and inventory that isn't earning an acceptable return, you know, that capital, that inventory can be repositioned to cash, Mm -hmm. right? It can be sold. And then uh, that capital can be redeployed, like to buy stocks, like he did, you know, with the Dempster piece right Mm. so the whole idea is that you know business is just a pile of capital ultimately and it's the job of the manager whether it's a ceo or a portfolio manager to deploy capital you know to its highest and best use and then to redeploy capital in the form of earnings that comes off the assets that are in place also to their highest and best possible use. So in in the case of Berkshire, you know, you had, um, you know, a business that uh, was screaming for uh, capital investment from its managers, but, you know, Buffett could not earn a, 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 a sufficient return right. on that incremental reinvestment, right? And so he didn't do it. And he, he, he didn't ever see himself as, quote, in the textile business because he owned Berkshire Hathaway. Right. He was in business. Right. And the distinction is, you know, go after uh, and, and deploy 
your your assets to their to their highest and best use. So so he took money out of a bad business, which was Berkshire, and you know redeployed it into a good business, which was the 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 insurance company National Indemnity that he, that he bought from Jack Ringwald in I think 1968. Um, have you had a chance to observe? any of his like more, I guess, more recent investments. And the one that comes to mind for me is ConocoPhillips. Um, a lot of the principles, for some odd reason, he's, I think I would argue that he kind of breaks a lot of his rules in the investment that he makes into um, Conoco um, for many different reasons, basically buying assets that are effectively depleting, but probably still valuing those assets as um, basically uh, fully priced. Uh, or at least um, him considering these assets to be um, continuously um, income producing, while in this case they were probably depleting. I thought that was one mistake of his. And then I guess the other, I, he was probably, in, as far as uh, PetroChina is concerned, he probably used uh. that. He, it was more of a trade, right? He was looking for some parity as far as uh, fully integrated um, oil companies as far as um, using China as a barometer for its uh, depressed valuations. I don't know what your thoughts are on some of these um, investments. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I got that, um, although I missed a little bit in the center. But, you know, there there's a couple things I would say that are that sort of come to mind when listening to you ask the question. You know, one is that when Warren was doing, you know, some, some arbitrage and risk arb, you know, Charlie said he wasn't very fond of it, but, you know, if it kept Warren out of the bars, then, you know, that's fine. <laughs> right. So, you know, not everything, you know, is going to be a, um, you know, a home run. Um, and, and I think you've seen some of this, like with some of the commodity bets and, you know, there was a, a similar bet in, in Exxon Mobil, right. you know, where he was, I think he committed a few billion dollars to Exxon Mobil in the, in the, third or fourth quarter of 2013 and then you know a year and a half later he was gone i mean one thing that i I think i find really fascinating you know here is that you know he tells you up just as, as most recently as the as the annual meeting uh from this past may that not not only does he have no idea where commodity prices are going, you know, this year, this month, or even a couple of years from now, he has no view as to the mid-cycle price of oil, right? And that really struck me because if you don't have a view of mid-cycle oil, then how do you possibly value something like ExxonMobil or ConocoPhillips? And um, my my suspicion, and I have no idea, this is really just a guess, is that... um, you know, those are effectively bond proxies, mm-hmm. right? And and the yields are uh, so rich relative to the fixed income alternative that um, that perhaps he was viewing them um, from that from that perspective. Right, right. Uh, another interesting thing I was thinking about was um, technological innovation and how he typically would try to uh, steer clear of um, companies that, like, for example, the tech space. But um, as you know, right now we're in the year 2016 and things that were considered um, high tech, um, say maybe a decade ago, are pretty much like the norm now. Um, I believe that he's kind of, he's dabbled into companies like IBM, which is basically just a big consulting company. But um, what comes to mind to me is the companies like Microsoft, for example, which pretty much are like 
almost um, staples to some extent, right, to um, people's business lives, for example. And I, I wonder at what stage um, he goes on to embrace some of these things because, you know, all of these um, uh, companies before that he invested, credit cards were relatively new, say, for example, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, as far as financial services are concerned. And I guess the today equivalent is like, you know, uh, web payment systems and um, Bitcoin or something like that. So I, I wonder where the stance is in terms of technology and when do you just kind of like succumb to that as far as, um, you know, real um, requirements to everyday life and how you can still um, start to invest in them as, as really great businesses, basically. Right, right. So, you know, one of my favorite um, parts of, of the partnership letters that Buffett comes back to over and over again is, is, is his definition of risk, right? Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes in, in modern day finance, we think about risk or risk is thought of as beta, mm -hmm. right? And that's the, how we quantify risk. And, you know, it's the degree to which a stock squiggles you know, over a given trailing period of time that determines its its beta. And, and and that's often the way people think about risk. And Buffett thinks about it very differently. He thinks of risk as not knowing what you're doing. Yeah. Right? And so you have to have a real understanding of a business to be able to value it. Mm. Right? And if you really don't understand it, then you can't value it. And And then I think what happens is, you know, you you look to the market to tell you what something's worth. And, and as soon as you do that as an investor, I think you're dead. Mm -hmm. Right. Because at least under the framework uh, that, that Buffett operates in. Right. The, the market has to be there to to serve you. In other words, offer you up enticing prices from time to time. Mm -hmm. But it can never really be there to inform you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when it comes to tech or healthcare or you know, anything for that matter. And, and by the way, this will be different for everybody. Right. But you have to know the limits of your own uh, circle of competence. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that Buffett will ever feel like there's a time where he has to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he couldn't find anything that was suitable to him in 1969. And so he closed the partnership as opposed to compromising on his principles. Right. And um, I would suspect that he would do the same thing again. I mean, it, it uh, so it's not really about being forced into anything. I think it's just a question of his own comfort level. And, and the question ultimately comes down to, you know, is this a bond? Yeah. Right. So you go back, I think the first article he ever wrote for Fortune magazine was in 1978. And it was called How Inflation swindles the equity investor it's a fabulous piece that he wrote then and, and you know in it he talks uh, quite extensively about how similar equities and bonds actually are right right and that you know most companies uh over time mean revert in their returns on capital etc but um i think buffett's looking for at least back in the partnership years i think he was looking for a 15 percent equity bond right so you know if the current yield on you know uh, on on distributable earnings over the price that he had to pay was something in the nature of fifteen percent, and he thought that the company sort of would be able to generate that kind of earnings in perpetuity. You know he was all for it, right? Right, right? and um, 
And, and so I think that's just the struggle with some of the technology companies because the pace of innovation is so fast. Now, your point's well taken that, uh, you know, maybe some of these are maturing and, and, and maybe that's the reason why you are seeing them in, in a name like IBM today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just think um, what one of the inevitable trends, this is definitely a secular trend, is basically um, just greater overall like entropy as far as the markets are concerned and faster pace, more rapid cycles of technological innovation. And, and unfortunately, you'll have to become almost very astute about what's happening in Silicon Valley as far as seeing like future businesses and how they develop, as we've seen with many of the pre-existing like listed companies right now in the tech space that have become um, almost like um, like Amazon, for example, right? So largest retailer in the world. But you, then you have to assess its um, financials and its value as well. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.